All right, basically kind of recap what's happened in the book of Esther so far, because not a whole lot has happened that we can't go ahead and rehearse it very quickly. But we had a king by the name of Xerxes who uh, had a big uh, party. And in that party, he decided to bring his wife in and show her off in some way or another. And uh, she refused. And because of that, they had to make a decree, unless uh, all the women get all fired up and start turning against their husbands. And uh, so they got rid of Vashti, the queen. And then they had basically a beauty pageant to pick another queen. And uh, when we left um, last week, he had picked Esther. And we had gotten down to verse 17 of chapter 2. And uh, we have already made mention about it. But it says in verse 17, And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her... Uh, queen instead of Vashti. In other words, she is the one that took Vashti's place. <clears throat> then the new material we hadn't talked about yet, it says in verse 18, Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. So to celebrate the fact that he was marrying Esther, um, they had a feast for all the princes and his servants, and Esther had her own feast, but he did something unusual to celebrate. The King James Version says he made a release to all the provinces and gave gifts. What do you think that means? All right, it's so like a holiday. What else? <clears throat> yeah, some commentators think it was very similar to the Jewish year of Jubilee. You know, they had a year of Jubilee that came every 50 years where... If you owed anybody money, it was gone. If you owed any taxes, it was gone. If you were a slave, you were set free. If you were in prison, you were set free. It's like a big reset button. And uh, so they, some people think that in order to really show how excited and happy he was, it's like he just said, uh, if you owe anything or if you're in any kind of trouble or whatever, boom. It's like it never happened. And um, it's interesting. Uh, when Jesus, I can't remember the passage because this just popped in my head, but Jesus refers to himself as being the year of Jubilee. Um, and the fact that when he came to this earth, he did the same thing. He gave us a reset button. But uh, so it just kind of shows you how uh, happy he was that he found a queen to replace Vashti, and he wanted the whole nation to celebrate. It's one thing to get the news that, hey, the king's got a new queen, but it's another thing to get the news, hey, because the, queen, the king's got a new queen, um, I don't have to pay taxes this year. Or um, I don't owe that money I owed before to somebody else, you know. That kind of makes you very excited there's a new queen. And so it had its effect. But then verse 19 says something. I'm sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Right. But here's the thing, how that's supposed to work, though. I mean, you're, you're being serious. I mean, I, if, you know, if somebody owed me a lot of money, all of a sudden, boom, the year of Jubilee came along where the King Xerxes says he don't owe you anymore. But the key to that is... It was supposed to be reciprocal in the fact that you owe somebody money that you didn't owe anymore. So it kind of worked its way all the way around. Now, there would be some exceptions to that rule, especially if you're at the top of the pyramid. Uh, but in most cases, yeah, this guy here didn't give you anything, but you don't owe so-and-so anymore. You see, so it all kind of washed out. That's the way it kind of worked. But I would agree, um, you know. You, you ended up um, getting kind of shortchanged if you're not careful. But look at verse 19, because this, very, this, this always brings up some questions. Now, before we read it, keep in mind that we've had this big parade of virgins come through, and 
The, after the parade of virgins came through, he picked Esther as his queen. They had a big celebration about Esther being his queen. He even did this great release of, of, of things that were owed and perhaps whatnot. But then we read verse 19, and it says, And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. To use Grady's expression again, huh? What do you mean the virgins were gathered together the second time? I thought he already picked a queen. Why are we having a second gathering of the virgins? That's right. This is the second help. This is not only, this is like the second helping of the virgins, if you will. Yeah, he's picked a queen, but that don't stop the parade. That's the idea. That there was a period of time, evidently, now that he has made Esther his queen, that he was kind of exclusive to Esther for a little bit. But that only lasted for a period of time, and then the whole show started over again. Because remember, he had a house of virgins, he had the royal house, and he had the house of women. And so just because he had a queen, him being a polygamous type of king that had a harem, just because he had a queen and just because he loved her a whole lot doesn't mean that, that the parade stops. And so basically what's being said here is that after this period of time of celebrating, uh, things went back to the way they used to be. Esther's now the queen, but the king went back to his old ways is basically being said here. But it was after this period of time that uh, Mordecai sat in the king's gate. And there's a lot of discussion among scholars smarter than me about whether or not this was official position or whether or not this was just something that Mordecai liked to do. Now, we think of someone sitting at the gate. We think it would be somebody just, somebody just sitting outside at their front gate watching traffic go by, but that's not what this means. This is where all the uh, legal affairs took place. This is where... Um, but the gate, even in, in, the, in the city of Jerusalem, the gate was the place where people gathered to decide legal issues, to decide accounting issues, to decide um, civil matters. Uh, this is more like a big open court area. And it may be that after Esther became queen, that because Mordecai was her uncle, he would receive some type of special assignment there in the gate. Or it may be uh, he just somebody that liked to sit in the gate because he wanted to know what was going on in the nation because he now had a daughter, adopted daughter, who was queen of the land. And he wanted to see what was going on about her. And um, so you can argue either way for that. And if, like I know Michael said he's been doing some study on this. You probably saw both sides of that, didn't you, Mike? Okay. Depends on who you read, what conclusion they come up with. But the main thing is, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate now. How he got there, we don't know for sure, but he's there. And verse 20 reminds us again that Esther had not showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did command the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. In other words, she didn't tell anybody she was a Jew. And up to this point in time, Mordecai hadn't told anybody he was a Jew. And uh, we discussed this last week, how that would be a hard thing to do, how people would know you were a Jew if you really were practicing as a Jew. But uh, we're not sure how all that worked. But this is brought up because of what happens beginning now in verse 21. It says, In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, uh, Big Than, I think I went to school with Big Than. You remember Big Than? Yeah, he, he big, he's a big guy. And uh, Teresh, uh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Azarus or Xerxes. Now, what does it mean to lay hands on him? Kill him. Wanted to assassinate him. 
And that was very common during this time period. In fact, exactly 14 years later, guess what happened to Xerxes? He was assassinated, but not by these guys because they didn't get that far. But anyway, they were talking about killing the king. They were plotting to kill the king. And guess who overheard them? Oh, Mordecai. Verse 22 says, And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and, the wing, and the Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. In other words, um, when you certify something, you say this is to be true. Uh, we have, uh, you get a certificate. That means it's been certified as being true. Sometimes on television, if you order one of those things from uh, one of those mints on TV, I forget the name of the mint company now, but they'll send you a certificate of authenticity so you know that this is a real gold-plated coin. Okay? It's not a gold coin. You don't get those. You get the gold-plated ones, but they certify it's a real gold-plated coin. Well, Esther went to the king and says, this is to be true, and it came from Mordecai. This is not something I heard. This comes from my uncle's mouth. In other words, the point is, Mordecai is saving your life, king. And so in verse 23, it says, When the inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So the king investigated and discovered that these men were indeed plotting to kill them. And um, the, the uh, King James Version says they were hung on a tree. Well, the practice of the Persians was not to hang people on a tree like we think of hanging someone. Their practice was to impale people. And to impale someone was not a very pleasant thing. Basically, it was a sharp stick that stuck up in the ground, and they would literally just drive the body down on top of it. So the uh, point of the stick would come out the top of the person's mouth or their head. So very brutal way of killing someone. But also they left them on that impalement so people would learn the lesson. You don't plot against the king. But the most important thing about this particular story was not how these people were killed, but it's the latter part of verse 23 where it says it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. And what was written in this book was the fact that it was Mordecai who foiled this plot. And in our Old Testament, we have First and Second Kings, but we also have First and Second Chronicles, which is the Chronicles of the Kings. And so we got something similar going over here. And this would be the Chronicles of King Xerxes. They had scribes that wrote down all the legal proceedings and all the things that took place in the throne room for uh, record keeping and for history's sake. And so the fact that Mordecai uh, plotted, uh, heard about this plot and told Esther to tell the king, thus saving the king's life, this was recorded in the royal record. And that's very important because of what's going to happen later on in this book. So it's not there just for the sake of being there, but it's there for a reason. And thus we come to the end of chapter 2. Any questions or comments? Anything anybody like to add? All right. So we get into chapter 3, and we're introduced to the most hated man of the Jews. As I told you earlier, when this particular book is read on the, during the Feast of Purim, as the reader is reading it to the congregation there in the synagogue or the father's reading it to his family in his house during the Feast of Purim, when they get to chapter 3 and they mention Haman's name, they all start stomping their feet and spitting and booing and, and saying, let this man be banished, let this man be cursed, because they hate Haman. And here's the very first thing that's mentioned about him. It says, after these things did King Xerxes promote Haman, 
the son of Hamedia, the Meathah, the, Agad- the Agadite, and advanced him and set his seat above all princes that were with him. And basically that means he made him second in command. It would make him a uh, vicar uh, or a prime minister or whatever you want to call him. Uh, he's second to, he only answers to King Xerxes and to nobody else. Now, here's where you start doing a little study of history. And if you know your Bible background, something interesting begins to happen here. It's almost like the thing, I don't know if you've ever seen it on the internet or read in a book or, or, or whatnot, the similarities between uh, President Kennedy and President uh, Lincoln. Have you ever seen some of those things? Like um, Abraham's Lincoln chief secretary was named Kennedy, and Kennedy's chief secretary was named Lincoln, and I forget all the different things, but there's all these similarities. Well, something begins to happen like this now. Yep, Mordecai is going to get involved. I want you to notice something here, though. It's very interesting. Notice it makes mention of the fact that he is a certain kind of person. It talks about he was the son of who his daddy was, but it refers to him as being a agatot. Ag, I can't pronounce it. Agat, agagite. There we go. Agagite. Helps if I don't look at it. Now, what in the world is an agagite? Anybody know? All right. This this. Let's do a little background, a little history here, since he brought it up. I'm not going to bring it up until he brought it up. Now he brought it up, I have to talk about it. All right, Agai was the leader of a group of people who the Israelite people hated, the Amalekites. You've heard about the Amalekites before. And and the Amalekites, the, the reason why the Jewish people hated them so much is because you have an event when the Jews were wandering through the wilderness, there in Exodus chapter 17, where they were weary from journeying, and all of a sudden coming up behind them and attacking the rear, where the people were the weakest and the most tired, were the Amalekites. Okay? And because of that attack, uh, Moses, of course, had Joshua intervene. And you may remember the story how that Moses stood up on a hill, and he raised his arms, and whenever he raised his arm, Joshua would prevail against the Amalekites, and whenever he got tired and dropped his arms, the Israeli army started to fall, and so uh, finally they had men start to hold his arms up and prop his arms up, because as long as his arms were up, they were winning, which I'm not sure what that had to do with anything, other than to show that Moses was the leader of the people, and so we could use that expression, uh, we hope that you'll help that person hold up their arms to mean hope that you'll support them. We get an expression out of that. But what's interesting is they, of course, defeated the Amalekites, but they, they didn't destroy them. But God said that one day that we would take care of them because of that. In fact, um, Exodus 17 and... Somebody read verse 19 for me. Exodus 17 and verse 19. I mean, verse 16. Verse 16. I got my numbers transpired in my head. All right. If you read the whole chapter, it talks about what God's going to do to the uh, Amalekites. And, but, but in that passage, it says, from generation to generation, there will be this constant warring with the Amalekites, okay? But God is going to deal with them one day. Now, somebody look up in the book of Deuteronomy for me. Moses is doing his farewell speech. And over in Deuteronomy chapter 25, somebody read verses 17 and 19 for me. This is when Moses is about to die, and he's making his farewell speech there in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And he makes mention of the Amalekites again. All right. So basically, Moses tells the people, you remember what those people did to us? Remember how they ambushed us and they, they, they attacked us from the rear? They didn't come up like men and attack us from the front. They, they were cowards and attacked us from the rear. Well, God's going to deal with them one day. Don't you forget about them. God's going to deal with them one day. Once you get into the promised land and everything's good and settled and you're established as a nation, God's going to deal with them. Well, God wanted to deal with them. In fact, the way he was going to deal with them was to send King Saul to deal with them. And King Saul was told to totally wipe them out. Wipe out everything. Every living thing. You wipe them out. Guess what? Saul didn't do that. He kept the best animals for himself. And he kept old Agog alive. Now, Samuel showed up and eventually killed him. But Samuel, Saul didn't carry out the command to kill all the Amalekites. And so... There are some people who believe, and like Michael said, there are some others who say, well, this can't happen because they were all supposed to be wiped out. But there are some people who believe that this particular man, Haman, is a descendant going all the way back to that time. All right? But here's what's even more interesting. You may have missed this when we started this class. But who do a lot of people think that Mordecai is a distant relative of King Saul. So what do we have going on here now? Bum, bum, bum. It's like it's happening all over again. You've got Saul's people, and you've got Agag's people. And we're finally going to have this showdown again, where it's finally going to be resolved that God promised would be taken care of long ago. This might be nothing to it, but it's kind of neat how that kind of works out. That here we've got this long-time descendant of Agag, perhaps, and this long-time descendant of King Saul, and they're meeting for battle again. And stuff like that just fascinates me when I start studying. And you don't learn that stuff unless you really do some deep background and start looking at stuff like that. But that's what I find fascinating about God's Word, how it all ties together. And I think maybe that even plays into some of the events that's, that happens here in the rest of this chapter. But... After spending 20 minutes on that first verse, let's look at another verse. <laughs> and it says, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. All right, two things I want to point out in this verse. First thing I want you to, to think about for a few moments is where it says, that all these people bowed and did reverence to Haman. And what was the reason why? The king had commanded. Now tell me what's unusual about that. Here was a man who was second in command of the entire Persian nation. Well, the point I'm trying to make is that you think if this man had the respect he was supposed to have, that it wouldn't need to be commanded. Which tells me, and I might be wrong about this, and it may be what you're talking about, Michael, but evidently, people didn't like Haman. That nobody was going to bow down to him unless they were made to bow down to him. Now, once again, all we can do is conjecture here. But there's a lot of people who think that Haman was a very ruthless man, a very greedy man, a man who took advantage of people and perhaps uh, stole a lot of things from people by his right of power, of who he was, that he was able to take people's homes, take their treasure, treasury and whatnot, 
uh, just because he had the power to do so. And so he was a hated man in the country for that reason. Uh, he comes before the king in just a little bit and offers him some money, which in that particular point in time, the amount of money he offered the king was three-quarters of the natural, national treasury at that time. How in the world can anybody have that much money? And it had to be perhaps because he took it from people that they shouldn't have taken it from. Or it might just been simply that uh, this was a command that the king issued because Haman insisted on, because Haman evidently has a very big ego, and uh, they wouldn't do that unless uh, they were told to, because as Michael says, because you only bow down to the king. Uh, But the point I want to make sure you understood is that this was something that was commanded. This was not just something that was an option. It was commanded. Um, But we find out in the rest of the verse that Mordecai, didn't do as he was commanded. He bowed not, nor did him reverence. Now, here's the next thing that people who are smarter than me like to talk about. Why in the world did Mordecai not bow down? Why was he the big stick in the mud that when he, uh, Haman came strolling through, everybody in the entire place bowed down, but there was old Mordecai standing? Why would he do such a thing? Now, a little bit later on, he's asked by some of the people at the gate why he's doing that, and he says, it's because I'm a Jew. Well, what in the world has that got to do with anything? There's nothing in the law of Moses saying you couldn't uh, submit to higher authority. In fact, they've been doing it for some time. So what's going on here? Well, we can only guess. All right, that's a good guess. Maybe he took some of Mordecai's property. There's nothing there is listed about that. There are some people who conjecture, go ahead, Jeff. Okay, maybe he thought he was an exception to the rule, may have been. Like I said, this is, there's no wrong answer here. We're just throwing stuff out because it's fun to throw stuff out sometimes. There are some people who believe that um, Haman wore uh, an idol around his neck, symbolizing the gods of Persia. And Mordecai felt like he, if he bowed down before Haman, he'd be bowing down before that idol, and that would be a direct violation of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Now, once again, we, we stay confused about how Mordecai and Esther looked at the law of Moses because they obviously were not in sync with a lot of things, but that might have been the case. There's others who believe that, uh, as oftentimes it is the case in some countries, that when Haman was made prime minister or second in command, he was also given the, the official title as high priest of the pagan religion of that, of that nation. And therefore, Mordecai wouldn't bow down before him because of the fact that here was a high priest of these false gods, and he wasn't going to bow down before the false gods. But the one I like the best, and once again, because it fits with the scenario I mentioned earlier, it may be that Mordecai didn't bow down to Haman because of who Haman's ancestors were. Generation after generation is what Moses said that the Amalekites would always be a problem generation after generation, and you don't have anything to do with them. And here's Mordecai saying, I know about your background, buddy. I know about your ancestors. I know about my ancestors, and I'm not showing you any honor whatsoever because I can go back in my history and saw the cowardly act where you attacked us from the rear and hit those defensive women and children who were already tired from the journey, and perhaps that's the reason why he, he did it. We, but we don't know. But whatever the reason being, all the text says is he tells the other guys it's because I'm a Jew. But he didn't give us any other explanation. So verse 3, Then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgresseth thou the king's commandment? 
Now it came to pass, they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. That's the only explanation that he gave. And um, so they went and after talking to him for several days about this, they kept saying, man, you crazy, you need to bow down. If you don't bow down, we're going to take it before Haman, and you better straighten up. And he never would listen to them, so finally they took it to Haman, and they wanted to see how this was all going to be resolved. The word for matters there in the King James is more uh, the idea of reason, whether Mordecai's reason would stand. And the reason he said he would not uh, bow down was because he was a Jew. Well, verse 5 says, When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And that leads you to believe that up until this point in time, Haman didn't realize that Mordecai was not bowing down. It may have been he was so... Um, enamored by everybody else bowing down, he didn't notice Mordecai standing off to the side not bowing down. He was too, uh, had too many lights in his eyes by looking at all the adoring people, if you will. But when he found out that what he was, that was being told him was true, in other words, the next time he rode through and saw Mordecai standing there, oh, that made him mad. How dare that man? How dare that man do that? And when he discovered that he was a Jew, it may be that the same thing I was talking about with Mordecai went back to Haman and thought, mm-hmm, I remember what his, their ancestors did to my ancestors. So this is almost like the Hatfield and McCoys, maybe, in a biblical sense. So it says in verse 6, And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown him the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of, of Xerxes, even the people of Mordecai. And um, why do you think he decided to do that? Why do he, when he realized that Mordecai was doing what he was doing, why did he decide he wanted to kill all the Jews? What would be his reason behind that? He was mad at Mordecai for not bowing down, but he wants to kill them all now. Why, Michael? All right. All right. And, and it goes back perhaps once again to what I was talking about that he's carrying over this thing. And there's some people who think this is a, he's using a lesser to the greater argument here. Anybody know what, in logic what the lesser to the greater argument is? It's this idea that he's got in his mind perhaps that if one Jew will do this, that means all Jews will do this. So if he's going to be punished, then we need to go ahead and get rid of all of them because this is always going to be a problem. It's almost like talking about them women that we're going to uprise if they let Bashti get away with this. And um, so he says, I'm going to kill them all. We've got to wipe out the entire uh, nation of Jews. And he's not just talking about there in the land of Babylon. He's talking about where they exist anywhere. So that means going all the way to Jerusalem and getting those who, were, who returned from the captivity. Uh, depending on you, who you read, we're talking about roughly 3 million people now that he wants to kill. Can you imagine? 3 million people. That's his plan. And that's what the king's going to decide, we're discovering. Three million people are going to be put to death. So he comes to the king, and, but they give us some background information here about the time period. It says in the first month, that is the month of Nissan. Um, by the way, I have a Nissan. And I, that's one of the, been one of the best cars I've ever had. I always bought American, but I got a Nissan. It works well. But anyway, in the first month, that is the month of Nissan, in the 12th year of King Azarus. So we're talking about, we can look at history now. From the time that he married Esther, to this particular point in time, there's been a period of around four years. 
So if we think for four years there was peace and harmony as far as Esther and the king and Haman and whatnot, but after that four-year period, he made this man prime minister, and now we got trouble. So in the first month, in the, in the first month, that is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day, from month to month, to the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. Now, here we're introduced to why the, the Feast of Purim is called the Feast of Purim. The word pure, Michael, do you remember? Do you look it up? What does it mean? You look it up. Pure is the Persian word for rock. And, but it has a connotation of casting rocks as casting lots. So the, basically the Feast of Purim is the Feast of Casting Lots. And the reason why Haman is casting lots is he wants to appease his gods evidently. And I don't think he's just doing this because he wants to be by chance. But he is casting lots to decide when he is going to kill these Jews. And he wants to get a date. He doesn't just pick a date arbitrarily. He casts lots for it. And we don't know what these lots were, if they were dice or however it worked out, or if there's a big calendar lying on the ground and they threw the rocks on the counter and wherever it landed. Uh, but somehow or another they cast lots until they narrowed it down to the day, the exact day when they were going to kill the Jews. Okay, and we're going to discover more about how that fits into the whole thing in just a moment. So when he's got that figured out, it's going to be during the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. And for your, just to kind of give you a time frame with the month of Adar, the Jewish month of Adar covers the last half of February and the first half of March. So it would be the last half, of, they don't, our months aren't the same as their months, so it would be uh, right there at the two weeks in February, two weeks in March, okay? And they didn't do the leap year, so y'all weren't even married, so, so that's rough. All right, okay. Then Haman said unto King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of the kingdom. Notice he didn't say specifically who it was. He just says there's some people. There's certain people. They're scattered all over. You almost get the impression that he's being very vague on purpose. He's being vague and kind of making it sound like, well, these are just some people that are scattered around. This is not some big body we got, we're dealing with here. And he goes on and says their laws are different from any other people, which is true. The Jewish laws are different. But then he says something that is not true. He says, neither keep they the king's laws. Well, they've been doing a pretty good job of keeping the king's laws, or the king would have heard about it by now. But what he's referring to is the fact that Mordecai is not keeping that one law. But he's making it into that lesser to greater argument again. I remember when I was growing up that if I got in an argument with either my sister or my two brothers, and... Um, and I happened to pop them on the arm or something, as you, know, you would do when you were little kids, they would immediately go to my mom and dad and say, well, Jim keeps hitting me. I only hit him once. Can't be saying I'm hitting you or keeps hitting you. I only hit you once. Well, that's what's going on here. Mordecai broke one law. Oh, the whole people are breaking all of your laws, king. He's, he's building it up. Therefore, it's not for the king's prophet to suffer them. In other words, if you don't do something about this, there's going to be a rebellion. All right? So if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. In other words, they need to be put to death. And I will pay you 10,000 talents of silver uh, to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it to the king's treasuries. Now, folks, you look at that, that don't sound like a whole lot, 10,000 talents, but in today's money... That's $10 million. 
and you can go do some studying about this in the background of this, that was three-quarters of the nation's national treasury at the time. So the question is, where in the world did this guy get all this money? Well, first of all, he was wealthy, but there's a second reason. You're looking like you know what it is. That's exactly right. In fact, you go down to verse 11. We'll skip down there real quick, and it says, The king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Now, the NIV kind of messed up here because it makes like the king is saying, I don't want your money. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when this is all done, you can have the money, you can have their property, and if you have all that, guess what? You can give me that money that you're talking about giving me, okay? So that's what's going on. So he's going to pay them 10,000 of silver so that they can put it in the king's treasury. And the king took the ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the son, uh, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also to do with them as it seemeth good to do to thee. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants. I'm going to stop right there for a second. We're running out of time anyway, but I'm going to stop there right for a second. So here's something else that's interesting. I love it. We find a little interesting things to kind of add. Look what it says in verse 12. The king's scribes were called together. And why in the world does it tell us when they were called together? It's just weird. They, they gave us the date of when they were called together to write this letter, this decree that all these people are going to be killed. And it says it's the 13th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. It's the day before when the Passover lamb was slain. And you can read about that over in Exodus chapter 12 if you want to. And once again, is that coincidence? Or is this just, just kind of odd that this decree that was going to kill all these people, kind of like an angel of death coming over, this decree was being written on the day before Passover. When the Jews celebrated deliverance in the land of Egypt. It's just, I just think that's kind of neat. I don't say anything about it in the story anywhere, but it's just kind of neat how it works out. And so they, they wrote it in every language, and they're going to send it out to every province, as the rest of the verse says. And it has the seal of the king's ring on it, so we know it's official. And then in verse 13... It says, the letters were sent by post to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to cause, to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So we, got, we call them together in verse 12. They wrote the decree, and the actual date is going to be the 12th month and 13th day. So we're looking at a period of how long before this actually is going to take place. A whole year. It's going to be a whole year. So they got some time to work this out. One other thing that's interesting in here, notice it says in verse 13, it says, and the letters were sent by post. What's the significance of that? Well, Persia was the very first nation to have what they call a true postal service. And that's why it says by post. That's why we call it the post office because of the postal service. And they were the forerunners of the Pony Express. The Persians had, had way stations set up every 14 miles where riders would carry the mail for 14 miles, stop at a postal station, pick up another horse, and they'd ride to another postal station. It's been said by history that they could carry mail through the entire nation of Persia 
within one week's time. In other words, if you mailed a letter from Babylon or from some other place, the it would, it would, longest it would take would be a week to reach the outermost portions of the nation. But here's the thing about it. Even if they did flee, they still were going to be put to death. No matter where they went, they were, going, they were in the empire, they were going to be put to death. The empire was about to strike back. Reminds me of a movie. But anyway, so the copy of this writing, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to end up the chapter. We're way past time. Uh, this was sent out to every, pub, every province, to every people, that they should be ready against that day. But here you get to the very end of the chapter. It says in verse 15, the last little sentence there, it says, But the city, Susha, was perplexed. Now, why were the, the native people, the Persians, perplexed by this writing? And they understood the full impact of this. You're talking about ripening out over 3 million people. What's going on? And, and here's the other thing. If you weren't a true Persian, if you were of another nationality that was living there, what would you might think about happening to you next? If you can do it to this whole race of people, who says you're not going to do it to me next? But we've got to stop there because those kids are wanting to come in. And I've been talking too much, but I have enjoyed talking too much. <laughs>